and welcome back to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is going to be one of our classic deep dives into historical fact versus fiction about an important point or an important clue in one of the National Treasure films. I think we've done a few of these so far, and they've gone over pretty well, I think, up to this point, Em. I've enjoyed them. I hope our listeners have as well. <laughs> Me too. You know, I will say our our Hunt for Lincoln episode last season about the Lincoln assassination was, was a fan favorite, and I was really impressed by it. So people are here for the fun pop culture and the history. Good to know. Yes. So today's historical deep dive is taking us back to the first National Treasure film, And we're going to be talking all about the Silence Do Good Letters, because yes, folks, they are real. (laughs) Yes, uh, as we will find later on in this episode, apparently National Treasure increased interest in people wanting to know about the Silence Do Good Letters, or even knowing that they were a thing, which I know that happened for me. Um, But we will talk all about that in excruciating detail in just a few minutes. In the meantime, I think we should start this off with our customary screams from Parkington Lane because I have one that I'm really excited to share with you, Emily. Okay, well, I'm gonna go first. So at the time that we're recording this episode, this past weekend was the 4th of July. So as you can imagine, national treasure abounds in popular culture during that time. And um, I was at a 4th of July party and actually received a text message from my lab mate that was a meme from Twitter that Aubrey so kindly took to our accounts and posted. And it was a picture of Anthony Fauci saying that if you're vaccinated, you can do whatever you want on the 4th of July. And someone commented on this and said, okay, I'm going to try and steal the Declaration of Independence, which fair. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who are vaccinated, just know that 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 was an option for you on the 4th of July. And if you didn't do that, you missed out. But- yeah, you, you failed. Um, I'm really glad, Emily, that you're starting to receive the barrage of messages from friends and colleagues and family when anything National Treasure pops up in their lives. <laughs> I call that progress. And guys, so it was 4th of July this weekend, and I thought my scream was going to be that I wore one of our National Treasure Hunt shirts to the Lincoln Memorial to watch the National, like, Washington, D.C. fireworks, which, guys, was, like, a highlight of my life. <laughs> it was so cool. Like, I felt really cool. Anyway, it, and I wore the BRB stealing the Declaration of Independence shirt, which I was like, oh, I'm funny, too. But... I actually have another scream and this happened literally five minutes before we started recording this. And Emily, I think you're really going to enjoy this. This actually blew my mind. Okay. So I was on the phone with my boyfriend before we started recording and I was telling him about this show that I started watching on Netflix. It's called Manifest. I don't know if you've heard of it, Em. Yeah, I think it got canceled. I was going to start watching it, but then I heard it got canceled. So I was like, I'm not going to put the time into it. Yeah. Well, they're trying to save it. So totally side note you should still check it out it's pretty good and I was explaining to him that it's this show that has a supernatural vibe to it but it's not like aggressive in your face supernatural 
it's like there's this mysterious thing that happens and they're trying to figure out why and you just get the impression there's going to be something supernatural about it. it's not something that could happen in this world uh-huh. and I was trying to explain it to him and I was like oh you know it kind of reminds me of this show that I watched when I was younger I think I was in high school and I was like, I don't remember what it was called. I think it was Happy Town or something. And so I Googled it and I Googled Happy Town and lo and behold, Happy Town, it, it was a one season show. It got canceled <laughs> our junior year of high school that I watched. And don't you know, Emily, when I Google it, the cast pops up. Guess who one of the main characters was played by? None other than Amy Acker, who you suggested. <gasps> yes. So back guys some of you probably remember our hunt for characters episode in season one where we tried to recast national treasure with like alternative actors and emily's whole shtick was picking these niche actors and actresses that i mostly had never heard of before emily suggested amy acker and i was like nope nope no idea who this person is lo and behold i did know who it was the entire time oh amazing is that crazy she's such a good actress that is crazy I'm so glad that you now um know of her work or remember that you know of her work it was it was my it was one of those just weird moments where I was like very full circle moment and a great example of how this podcast is infiltrating my daily life hence a scream from Parkington Lane and with that y'all if you have screams to share if national treasure infiltrates your life as well you should tell us about it on our social media Emily want to do the honors you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT hunt podcast You can also find us to listen to on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We are the National Treasure Hunt Podcast. Guys, go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on any of those platforms. We absolutely love talking to you guys. So tell us what you think about this episode. If you have any fun stories from your 4th of July experiences this year, feel free to let us know. Um, and while you're at it, go ahead and check out our merch store on TeePublic that is linked in our bio on both Twitter and Instagram. Go ahead and get yourself some National Treasure Hunt merch for your treasure hunting. And for the next time you too go to the Lincoln Memorial on 4th of July to watch fireworks. Highly recommend. Anyway, with that, y'all, let's get right into it. This is our deep dive into the silence do good letters. So here's how this episode is going to shake down. We're going to start off, as always, by reminding you of the context in National Treasure in which these letters become important. Then we're going to go right into our historical overview. What was the truth behind the story of the silence do good letters and then finally we'll wrap it up by assessing how the letters were portrayed in the storyline in national treasure fact or fiction we got to answer the ultimate question so that's what we're going to do here so let's uh let's get started with the national treasure context now emily i'm mostly providing this context for you because i know you could probably use the help thank you i appreciate it very much (laughs) Okay, so this is once again back to our first National Treasure movie. We initially 
encounter the silence do good letters or at least the fact that we will need them really within the first 10 minutes of the film when on the Meerschaum pipe found within the Charlotte ship we see a riddle that read the legend writ the stain affected the key in silence undetected 55 in iron pen Mr. Matlack can't offend now for the first good chunk of the movie the heist sequence where they're stealing the declaration we're really focused on the second verse of that riddle the declaration of independence part but it's only after the heist is actually over and ben abigail and riley have the declaration of independence in their possession that we mentally return to the first part of the verse the key in silence undetected so that of course means the silence do good letters now you might recall that Ben has to go to his dad's house to get the letters because he had scans available in his apartment, but because he had a credit card slip, his apartment is under siege by the FBI. Now, Emily, I thought you would appreciate this little tidbit here. The fact that the very first mention or even discussion about the silence do good letters in the movie is one of Ben's classic patriarchy moments. Do you remember the scene that I'm talking about? No. <laughs> so it's not a surprise. It's not. It's the scene where um, Ben, Abigail, and Riley are sort of hanging out by the tidal basin after the heist has occurred and they're figuring out what they should do next because again they realize they can't go to Ben's apartment and Abigail is asking tons of questions about the whole situation and then Ben's starting to talk very facetiously about the letters so Abigail's asking questions about the letters and he's blowing her off and telling her that she can't shut up you know that whole scene mm -hmm. so that's actually where the letters first come up in the movie now in terms of the film itself, there's a really nice kind of filmography bit here. So there's a nice sequence here in which we learn more details about the letters. It's a parallel sequence of scenes where the FBI and Ian's crew are totally in parallel learning about the letters at the same time and together. Yes, I really like that scene. Yes, for sure. And it's kind of funny because it's um you have ian and his henchmen like realizing like oh boys why are these letters capitalized and one of the henchmen's like because they're important and it's like <laughs> which so they're basically all learning at the same time what the letters are and we as the audience are being clued in as well right we actually have one of the fbi sidekicks serving as a narrator um and he says when Ben Franklin was only 16 years old, he secretly wrote 14 letters to his brother's newspaper pretending to be a middle-aged widow named Silence Duguid. And then we have one of our classic stupid Sadusky lines where he literally just repeats what someone just said to him. It would only be worse if that FBI narrator was a woman. So Sadusky says, these letters were written by Benjamin Franklin. It's like- Thank you for that new information. Yes, exactly. So I think this is actually funny. Not only is it just a nice sequence of parallel, um, just showing that the villains and the FBI are just all 10 steps behind Ben and the crew, but in, in a weird way, um, the villains being paralleled with the FBI makes you wonder, like, is the FBI being portrayed as a villain here too? Because they're, you know, they're just kind of at the same stage and just 10 steps behind at all times interesting thought process i digress 
anyway, that's how we learn the actual bulk of the historical information about the Silence Do Good Letters. And then, of course, plot wise, we learn that Ben's dad, Patrick, had the letters in the first place because Patrick's dad found them in an antique desk from the press room of the New England Current newspaper. But of course, Patrick has since donated them to the Franklin Institute. We then learn that these letters are on display in the main rotunda of the Franklin Institute, and Riley pays a little local kid to retrieve the letters mm -hmm. using the Ottendorf cipher from the back of the Declaration of Independence. And, and shout out to our friend Robert over at Live from the Code Bar. As we discussed on his podcast, um, I guess about a month ago now, the Ottendorf cipher, of course, gave us the page line letter of each of the letters of interest in decoding the cipher. So that would correspond to which of the silence do good letters as the page, then the line of that letter, and then the letter within that line. Mm -hmm. So that is our context. Does it ring a bell now, Em? Yes, yes. I really, I really like this set of scenes now that you're reminding me what they are. Yeah, it's it's cool because we actually get a lot of attention paid to the silence do good letters um, without really realizing it because so much of, of the movie is spent on the declaration. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I didn't really think about it that way. So with that context, the ultimate question here and why we're even here for this episode is to dive into the history and find out more about the silence do good letters and figure out how accurately or inaccurately their existence was portrayed in this film. Um, it is one of our favorite pastimes here on National Treasure Hunt. So to dive into the Silence Do Good Letters, we actually start with a brief history of Ben Franklin. Makes sense. Yeah, so Ben Franklin, surprise, surprise, was not born in Philadelphia. I always thought he was. Yeah, I kind of did too. Yeah, Philadelphia kind of like adopted him as their own because he did a lot of his most memorable work when he was living in Philly. But it turns out that he was born in Boston as one of 17 children. My goodness gracious. My mom was one of nine and I thought that was a lot. I mean, that is a lot. But so I feel like I now am realizing that anytime I say Ben in reference to Ben Franklin, it's going to be super confusing because of Ben Gates. And also mm -hmm. his name is Ben Franklin Gates. Oh gosh. <laughs> so, so for clarity here, I'm going to try really hard to say Ben Franklin at all times, which is going to sound both really dumb and hopefully very clarifying. <laughs> anyway, Ben Franklin left school at age 12 to become the apprentice to his older brother, James. And James was the publisher of the New England Current newspaper. Okay. Okay. Now the Current, it turns out, was a unique paper as the first colonial journal that expressed these strong, what we would probably consider counterculture opinions about politics, religion, everything that you're not supposed to discuss around the, the dinner table with your family. Mm. Um, as you might expect, since this was colonial America, this didn't go over particularly well. No, you don't say. <laughs> um, because, you know, here's another spoiler alert. James would eventually be imprisoned and later censored in his oh, publication. Wow. Yeah, because that was a thing you could do um, back before America was America. Yeah. Uh. 
<laughs> stunned speechless. Good. So during his apprenticeship, Benjamin Franklin was apparently really intrigued by the writings of the newspaper staff. He was young, he was apparently really witty himself and was interested in writing, but because he was still a kid, um, his writing wasn't really taken seriously, which mm. is kind of sad, but I, I'm pretty sure the same thing would happen today. In uh, it's kind of sad, but I understand. Yeah, um, so what did he do? He decided to do a little sneaky action of his own all right, kind of like uh, his namesake, Ben Gates, in the film later on, he decides to write under a pen name and basically write these letters, sign them with a different name, and slip them under the door of the print shop at night. Mm, sneaky. It's sneaky, but here's the thing. It would only work if the letters were good enough that they would be printed, right? Because regardless of what name he used, since it was a pen name, um, it's not like the newspaper staff knew who this person was, so they had no reason to publish it unless it was good. Well, it turns out the letters were good. I mean, yeah, they made it into a plot of National Treasure, so. Well, true. I mean, and they helped the plot. I'll give them that. So, guys, if you're interested in checking out the letters, we will be posting a link to all of them on our social media this week, and we do encourage you to take a look because they are actually kind of hilarious especially given the context we're going to go through them in more detail but be on the lookout on our socials for that so anyway what was the pen name that he used emily well he used the pen name mrs silence do good and i just gotta say i feel like it should have been obvious that this wasn't a real person i mean i feel like the only way he could have made it more obvious if, if he said that his name was Ben Dover or something like that. Oh like, God. Are you 12? <laughs> right. I mean, and so it, it turns out that the newspaper staff, including the brother James, all thought this was a pseudonym, but patriarchy, they thought that Silence Do Good was a pseudonym for just a man living in Boston even though it was Mrs. Silence Do Good. Why would someone who was a man choose to give up their patriarchal status and work under a pseudonym of a female? It's a great this, question. In this day and age, not, it, not currently. It's a great question to which I counter with, why would the newspaper staff assume it was a man? Why? Because it was so witty and so good that they mm. didn't think a woman could do it patriarchy woof anyway we we actually know a little bit about the backstory of this mrs silence do good character apparently she purported to be the widow of a minister um and the first letter that benjamin franklin slipped under the door of the print shop was so popular that he continued writing pretty much like every other week and wrote a total of 14 letters throughout the year 1722 Oh, wow. So not exactly every other week, but. No, and it wasn't throughout the whole year either. It was like kind of in the middle. It was just, it was that year. That's when it was happening. And the reason they were so popular is because they really took a satirical look at life in colonial America. My which, kind of guy. Yeah. People found it really funny. Um, and I kind of equate this to maybe like going on Netflix today and seeing comedy specials where mm -hmm. the comedians are usually poking very much fun at a lot of oftentimes bad things happening in the world um and and 
making it sound as dumb as sometimes it actually is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was the equivalent. This is 1722 equivalent of Netflix comedy. Mm. That's Mrs. Silence Do Good. And so what I want to do here, um, I thought it would be fun for me to briefly go through the content of each letter and just like get your thoughts on what Mrs. Silence Do Good was writing about. You, you game? Sure. Okay, so letters one and two were basically an autobiography and background of this Mrs. Silence Do Good, which I find really entertaining. Like Benjamin Franklin developed such a backstory that it took two letters to get it all out there. Okay, so here's some deets on, on her background. Em, are you ready? Mm -hmm. So Mrs. Silence Do Good was born on a ship en route to Boston. And apparently when she was born, her father was so overjoyed that he was like celebrating and he was swept overboard and died. That's some Disney level nonsense right there. <laughs> Literally. So she became the apprentice to a minister. Um, I think because I think if I remember correctly, it was because, um, you know, she was her, her mother was a single mother and she needed help. So, you know, she needed to basically get a job in a sense. So Silence Do Good is apprenticed to a minister and that's where she becomes really exposed to books and writing and education, which is, is important backstory, I feel like, because if you're purporting to be a woman in colonial America, maybe you don't have access to education. So how would she be able to write these letters and be so witty and satirical? Good point. Um, she eventually married this minister who died seven years after their marriage, and she claims that she, quote, has a natural inclination to observe and reprove the faults of others. Sounds like Jane Austen. Sure, I'll take your word for it because I haven't read Jane Austen. So, uh, so that's my summary for you of the first and second letters. Tell me, uh, give me your thoughts. What do you feel about uh, Mrs. Silence Do Good? Uh, she seems like a character, uh, for sure. I mean, one of those stories that it's just kind of like, it's almost too kooky to not be real. Um, definitely has that going for her. I have to say the whole married and then husband dying seven years later is like a kind of sucks. Uh, but I guess at the time that was probably fair game yeah um and I just love love her sass level already I can tell that the rest of the letters are going to please me immensely yes and I'm going to provide I think a little bit less detail on the future letters I just thought it was really important that you and I be acquainted with silence do good really well before we proceed so letter number three was silence do good's advice on her service, like what she's learned from giving to her country and like what you should do to give back to your country. Thoughts, Em? So this was satirical? Yeah, I think it was like a little aggressive. Okay, I mean, you know, good on her for feeling so highly of herself that she thought, you know, she had done enough to serve her country that she could uh, tell others about how to do the same. Yeah, especially because she had sort of just moved here. <laughs> True. <laughs> On that ship over from Boston. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, she didn't know anything else uh, or any other country. So that's good for her. Okay, letter four is where things get real fun. Um, 
Um, this is a letter on higher education. Mm. So something that you and I, I, I feel like we'll probably have many thoughts on. We'll probably have to, you know, tone it down a little bit, but silence do good doesn't turn it down. In this letter, she ponders the value of sending her very fictional son to college, specifically to Harvard, because again, this is Boston. Mm. Um, and she like goes in on Harvard here. It's actually really funny. She describes this very fanciful dream that she had where everyone in this dream sent their kids to college, even though their kids were like really dumb. And so they like didn't get anything out of it, but it was just like a status symbol because the parents could pay for it. So they did it, you know? Hmm. That. Yeah. That... You're holding back. <laughs> Stop holding back. <laughs> that seems not unlike what happens in some cases today. Um... The college admission scandal is coming to mind. Yeah. And I think, you know, you and I also both, we both got rejected from Harvard for grad school. So we have a little, uh, we have a little tension surrounding that name. That's fair. Um, I believe Silence Do Good also has like an issue with Yale and that's going to come up later, I think. If not, I just didn't write it in the notes. But yeah, it's a very sassy relationship with like higher education as a whole, which I kind of feel it. I mean, no one wants to put me on my soapbox of like the value of a liberal arts education compared to the value of an Ivy League degree. But here we are talking about it on our podcast <laughs> about national treasure. And um that makes sense. Anyway, that was letter number four. Letter number five was on something else you're going to appreciate, Emily. It was on women's rights. Ooh, and liking her. Yeah. So in this letter, the, the thesis, so this isn't satirical. It's presented in a satirical way, but like the point you're supposed to get from it is that Silence Do Good is fiercely defending women's rights and in, she's insisting they should be able to receive an education. I mean, good on her. Yeah, good on it, Benjamin Franklin. Right? I feel like when I was researching this episode, I was like liking Benjamin Franklin more and more. I never had much of an opinion on him, to be honest with you. Um, but this was making me like him more. Yeah. I mean, to have that view during that point and that period of time is relatively uncommon. And the fact that he took you know, this opportunity when he's just kind of having fun writing these letters and decided to dedicate a whole letter to this. And remember, he's still a kid. Oh, yeah. He's not even an adult at this point. Oh, that makes it even cooler. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Okay, letter number six is all about pride and vanity. Mm. So Silence Do Good criticizes both pride and and vanity which she thinks manifests especially in the way people dress their clothing um she just really gets on a soapbox about hoop petticoats that women were wearing at the time um and just like really like thank you for coming to my ted talk hoop petticoats out the door kind of vibe I have to say, this is this pride and vanity is giving me a vibe from a quote that I don't know off the top of my head, but from Pride and Prejudice, um, 
And it, it kind of reminds me of that once again, I like a Jane Austen type thing. You know, Jane Austen was writing about these uh, these people during uh, a time when fashion and elegance was of the utmost importance, utmost importance, and is doing it in a way that's somewhat satirical of the, the culture and the lifestyle. So I think that that's really interesting and kind of gives me that vibe. Interesting. Like I said, I have not read, but now I'm wondering like when Pride and Prejudice was written. 1813 Google has told me it was gonna blow my mind if they were like contemporaries you know so letter what I was just like yeah I'll cut it um very nice parallel there Emily thank you letter number seven is very different all right the subject of letter number seven is funeral elegies like a eulogy um but i think it's funny all i said was funeral elegy and you started laughing so that's good it's just so random (laughs) um it's gonna get even more random because this isn't just one of her typical letters she writes it in the form of a recipe what so it's a recipe on how to write a funeral eulogy so like an outline yeah well a hundred yes exactly it's an outline and so the what they're poking fun of here what she's poking fun of here is the fact that they all sound the same and everyone's made to sound like a saint even though they probably weren't in real life that's accurate Um, and so yeah that's the funny part but it's even stranger because it's when I say like written like a recipe I mean it so to to describe I, I pulled out a little um excerpt to read to you okay um which I think you'll enjoy Um, I'm going to do my best, I don't know, reading voice, I guess. And I quote, having chose the person, take all of his virtues, excellencies, etc. And if he have not enough, you may borrow some to make up a sufficient quantity. To these, add his last words, dying expressions, etc. Then season all with a handful or two of melancholy expressions, such as dreadful, deadly, cruel, cold death, unhappy fate, weeping eyes, etc. End quote. <laughs> That's savage. <laughs> Do you think she had someone in mind <laughs> when she was writing this? I kind of hope so. <laughs> To be honest with you, I mean, this is this is some like creative writing level expertise that I have not witnessed in all of my readings of historical texts for educational purposes or anything. I'm so here for it. I find it so funny um, and just so creative. I'm just like all snaps right now. Huh. This is my favorite of them. Spoiler alert. <laughs> thus far thus far it could change so so far folks emily is recommending that if you look at any of the silence do good letters you should definitely take a look at number seven since that is so far her favorite okay so number eight is kind of back to the um samplings of the forthcoming declaration of independence and constitution where we see freedom of speech pop up Okay, so this is another case where through satire, um, Benjamin Franklin, aka Silence Duguid, is fiercely defending freedom of speech, including for newspaper writers. 
Ah, convenient. Yes, it gets even more convenient. This particular letter was published one month after Benjamin Franklin's brother James was jailed for offending the government in the newspaper. Ooh, nice brother stuff there. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get more into that jailing and that whole relationship, which is actually kind of crazy after we're done going through the letters. But um, this is one of those times where, like, if anyone was wondering if someone at the newspaper was writing the letters, it should have been a good clue or a good hint. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know how that wasn't figured out. But yeah. Anyway. So that's letter number eight. Letter number nine is actually pretty interesting. And Emily, I'm going to be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on this. The topic was religious hypocrisy. And the thesis, again, if you will, of this letter was Silence Do Good asking the question of who is more dangerous in a way. Those who pretend to be devout, but like behind closed doors aren't devout at all, or those who are just openly non-religious. I have thoughts. Please share if you'd like. I think as a religious person, I think that the people that are more dangerous are those who pretend to be devout. Like I in no way like purport that I am devout in my, in the way I practice Christianity but I think people who pretend to be and pretend to know all the answers and pretend to have everything right, but in reality are doing all kinds of wrong things are like, I don't need, I I don't even think that's comparable to people who are openly non-religious. I think people that are openly non-religious are just like, that's cool for you. Yeah. But I think like, if you're taking a soapbox and you're standing on it then you best believe and do what you're purporting to believe and do like practice what you preach yeah basically practice what you (laughs) preach but I imagine this was like a pretty crazy question to ask at the time it was written oh for sure yeah no that at that time that wouldn't have been a good a good thing to bring up So just, I guess, another instance here of Benjamin Franklin being ahead of his time. So we are winding down here to letter number 10. Um, This is where we actually get into some topics that have a little bit of an edge of almost um, social good or almost even a policy edge to them. The letter number 10 was this idea of public relief for widows. So This is a proposed public program to support poor widows, and it's kind of unclear which parts of this are satirical, because it's all presented in a very, like, logical way of, listen, these people don't have, you know, money, they don't have the ability to get jobs, they have to take care of their children, they don't have a spouse, you know, all that kind of stuff, and this is how we could help them. So it it feels a little bit out of place. Um, But I'm actually going to let you respond to this and number 11 together because the follow-up is letter number 11, which is very satirical. And this is a replica program of public relief for spinsters. (laughs) Um, In this follow-up of the previous letter, 
Silence Do Good proposes to aid, quote, women virgins at least 30 years old, end quote. These are the spinsters. So Emily, thoughts on public relief for both widows and spinsters? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly the widows thing came from the background story that Benjamin Franklin created for Miss Silence Do Good. And so it, it makes sense that it would be something that would be near and dear to her heart um, moving forward. Uh, the public relief for spinsters is uh, different. A choice, one could say? It, it is a choice. I, I don't know how to feel about it. I think the, the point to really underscore here is that a spinster in this case is considered an unmarried woman at 30 years old. Oh, crap. I didn't even. Right, we didn't register that. Register that. Oh, gosh, I'm coming up to that age. So are you. Yeah. So public relief for us, I suppose. Yeah. We're going to be spinsters soon. Letter number 12 is on the topic of drunkenness, in which Silence Do Good ridicules the practice and concept of excessive drinking, and even in some cases, drinking in moderation. So, Emily, as someone who um, sometimes partakes in the drink as we are recording this very podcast, what are your thoughts on letter number 12? I agree with Mrs. Do Good. Um, I, I think in many ways, like you, find excessively drunk people very annoying. I have no tolerance for people when they are excessively drunk. You can be, you can be, you can be tipsy, you can be a little drunk, but like once you start reaching a level where you don't know what you're doing anymore and you're not remembering things, I, my, I, I just lose patience altogether. I suspect based on this letter that Benjamin Franklin agrees with you. So you have a founding father on your side. Awesome. So this brings us to our penultimate letter, number 13, which is about moonlit evenings in Boston. That's a change of tone, wouldn't you say? Oh, Yeah. So in this letter, Silence Duguid describes a nighttime walk and all the different types of people that she ran into on this nighttime walk and the people that she spoke to and danced with and enjoyed the evening with. First of all, danced with. Wow, what a, what a walk. Second of all, it's like people watching, but in letter form. True. I'm all for that. It's like Amazing. the original Gossip Girl. Okay. Silence Duguid. Was the original Gossip Girl. You heard it here first, folks. All In Aubrey's up. opinion. You just called it people watching. We people is, watch. Yeah, but that's basically the whole premise of Gossip Girl. Anyway. Well, I haven't seen it. Shocker. I haven't seen any of the things that you watch either. So here we are once again. Um, Emily, this brings us to the last letter. Are you sad? Are you excited? How are you feeling right now? I'm a little sad that it's coming to a close here, but I'm hoping we're ending on a good one. Hope we're, we, we leave me on a high here. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, a less funny topic, but we do get a little bit of detail here that 
based on the last 10, 15 minutes, I think you'll enjoy. So the topic of letter 14 is religion and the clergy. Uh, so this is another attack really on organized religion. But the part that I think you'll enjoy is the strong emphasis on um, how much Silence Do Good hates the faculty at Yale and the clergy throughout New Haven. Hmm. Okay, so we're getting back to that Ivy League uh, oh, yeah. status there. That's that's fair. Um, sorry, yeah. what were you gonna say? Pretty pretty entertaining, I think. Um, but that's where it stops. I don't know. I was kind of hoping or expecting that there would be, you know, a nice conclusion letter. Maybe maybe it was a letter written by Mrs. Silence Duguid, and it was like, if you're reading this, it means I have died. Or, you know, something that just really wraps up the story. Or like, I found a husband. Or, oh my gosh, Emily, I kid you not. making me stop writing. Apparently, people were so obsessed with these letters that the newspaper was, like, getting marriage proposals written to it from, like, people (sighs) in the city written to Mrs. Silence Duguid. I love that. Yeah, that's a true story. Um, So, yeah, that would have been a fitting ending as well. It just feels very, feels very abrupt. And you know what? Apparently, I'm not the only one who feels this way. People in and around Boston apparently grew very distressed when the letters stopped coming. As would I. Yeah, they they just like fell in love with this mythical person. And so as a result of this public distress, Benjamin Franklin's brother, James, ran an ad in his own newspaper in December of 1722 asking people for info on Silence Duguid's whereabouts. And that, my friend, is when Benjamin Franklin came clean that it was him the whole time. Yeah, this is like reality TV before there was TV. It cannot look. Oh my gosh, why would you come clean at that point? Just let it go, man. I feel like that's the point at which you have to come clean because now it's like a serious thing. It, It turns out that Boston as a whole loved it. They thought it was hilarious when they found out. But but James did not. He was mad. I mean, I probably would be too if I were in James' position. I think that's ridiculous. Just because your little brother showed you up? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, I find that extremely dumb. It turns I mean, out- We're both only children, so- we, we are, but also I feel like my impression is colored a little bit by the end of this story, which you don't know yet, and I do. Um, but before we get to the end of that story, I do just want to say, after going through these letters in you know light detail here, I do have an opinion that I think relates back a little bit to episode five of our show, where we talked about how national treasure is used in the classroom, just like the value of unconventional teaching tools. Um, in order to engage students and make them actually interested and excited about things that they otherwise wouldn't be. Thinking from that perspective, I actually really wish the silence do good letters were taught in school, Mm. especially in like an English class. I feel like students are often asked to assess older texts in English classes. And I think that the silence do good letters could actually be a really interesting window into life in colonial America since they're all based on um, things that were actually happening in the colonies. But at the same time, it can be a teaching tool in, you know, helping students understand or even learn to write in or evaluate a satirical style. Oh, wow. That's so true. You know, I took a, I took a course in high school 
called the American Experience. And it was basically a class that was a history class and an English class. And there were two separate classes, but you, the teachers were like paired up and you had the same classmates in both classes and you'd have them one after the other. So the idea was to kind of merge what you were reading in English class with what you were learning about in history and so on and so forth. I think this would have been perfect for that. If you were still in touch with any of those teachers, you should totally make this suggestion and I feel like they would thank you. It's a, I think it's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll get off my little soapbox here. To finish the story, um, we need to kind of answer the question of what happened to Benjamin Franklin and his brother and the silence do good letters as a whole because we got to bring this back to national treasure. So back up a little bit in the middle of 1722 as the letters are being published it's summertime and Benjamin Franklin had to temporarily take over the printing of the newspaper when he was 16 years old at that point when his brother was jailed. Now in case you're interested James was jailed because he had written that the Massachusetts government wasn't doing enough to stop pirates, which I just find really random. And I think a lot of the historical community would agree because in terms of the stuff that he wrote that was like contrary to the government, this mm -hmm. was like not bad in comparison. But this is what got him thrown in jail. Yeah. And I mean, even the stuff that Silent Do Good was writing was more inflammatory you know, yeah infl yeah inflammatory than this yeah i would agree but hey that's what happened so he was in jail for like a very short amount of time um benjamin franklin took over as the formal printer of the paper and by formal i mean like he's getting credit his name is credited within the paper itself in early 1723 so the following year why, you may ask? Well, it turns out that James had once again been reprimanded. And basically his punishment was that he wasn't allowed to print the newspaper anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, yeah, he basically did it under Benjamin's formal leadership. Okay. Um, yeah. Good but way to get around that. It is, it is. But this is where the, the relationship between the brothers becomes especially contentious. I mean, it kind of already was, I think, based on the letter, the Silence Do Good letters and once that was found out. Mm -hmm. But apparently by the fall of 1723, so less than a year into his formal running of the paper, Benjamin Franklin left Boston for New York. And then, of course, as we all know and love, Philadelphia even though he had four years of his apprenticeship left. Now, it was said that he didn't like working under his brother, who was really controlling, even from this position of, like, technically not allowed to be a part of the newspaper anymore. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the ending of this, this story. And I do want to kind of polish it off with one little fun fact, Emily, because I know you typically like them. Are you ready? I am prepared. So Mrs. Silence Duguid was not the only pseudonym that Benjamin Franklin used in his writings throughout his life. It turns out that Ben Franklin would go on to use many pseudonyms in his career. The most famous one being one that you've heard of before. And this, like, I didn't even remember when I was reading this. I was like, oh, duh. But the most famous being Richard Saunders from Poor Richard's Almanac. No way. Yeah, he wrote that. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently, um, 
he used other pseudonyms throughout his writing career as well. So that's our little background on what actually happened in 1722 and 1723 with regards to the silence do good letters and the New England current. So Emily, we got to ask the ultimate question. Did National Treasure do it right? Did they indeed? And Aubrey, I'm going to ask you this question because... <laughs> because you already forgot the context part of this episode 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> okay, so when it comes to assessing how the Silence Do Good letters were portrayed in National Treasure, I would kind of say so far so good, you know. The portrayal accords with history in terms of who wrote them and when they wrote them and where they were published and all those little details that we get from the context setting that the FBI agent does when he's reading that little bit. Mm -hmm. um, all those historical parts are right. So the past is correct. So I think what we really have to ask is what about the present? Mm. So this is where we digress a little bit from reality. The Silence Do Good letters, I'm sorry to say, are not actually housed at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. That's a shame I would have gone and visited. I know, right? Um, but the reason, one of the reasons they don't actually exist at the Franklin Institute is probably because they don't exist at all. <laughs> um, it was said that James burned the originals when mm. he found out that Benjamin had written them because he's spiteful and a child. I mean, how much older was James than Ben? German Franklin. <laughs> I don't know. Substantially older and that he was running this newspaper and his brother was like his little lackey. I don't okay. know. Well, I was going to say if he was like two years older, then like maybe you know, like you can understand him having like a bit of a hissy fit. But he was still running like his own business. I mean, yeah, but so was Ben German Franklin. <laughs> age 16 when he had to take over. Touche. I can't argue with that. Um, but, you know, they had, the, the letters had all been published already in the newspaper. And so that's why we have scans and images of the printed letters that like appeared in the New England Current, mm -hmm. which really just supports my theory of why couldn't Ben or Ian have just pulled the letters up online? Great question. Uh, it's always bugged me. Of course, we know the answer is because they wanted to use Philadelphia and they had to get the characters there. And the Franklin Institute is named after Ben Franklin and has a massive statue of him in the rotunda. And it's just like a good setting for this and whole. It's, it's more fun to have a kid running in and getting let like clue like letters for the cipher and that kind of thing like that's a that's a memorable part of the movie I mean I guarantee you that fictional kid went back home and was like I should learn about these and then just look them up online so even in the fictional national treasure universe this movie is helping kids get interested in history how perfect. meta is that perfect yeah. So anyway, just to, to wrap this up, really, um, if you do some digging online, you will find that interest in the Silence Do Good letters did spike substantially following National Treasure, much like it increased interest in the Declaration of Independence and the National Archives, which, as we know, was a goal of, of our friend Charles, um, the creator, one of the creators of this film franchise. Um, and something that I found really funny 
is that apparently the National Archives online store sells replicas of the letters literally to this day. But for some reason, it's only a set of nine. I'm like, what happened to the last five? What? But the good news is letter seven is in there. And I'm pretty sure you decided that that was your favorite. Letter seven is my favorite. (laughs) Wait, I might want to go and buy these now because it just, just for number like seven just for number seven and like frame it and put it in my house <laughs> if you do that I will be so incredibly impressed um they even and I will say Emily the caption for the product on their website even mentions national treasure so the national archives is just really milking national yeah. treasure for all it's worth they, they know how to get interest it's great so, So ultimately, Emily, to answer your question, I would say that the history of the Silence Do Good letters is presented probably the most accurately of any of the tidbits that feature in these movies. Um, But in order to use such an interesting niche bit of history that so many people didn't know about before, they did just have to take some liberties in terms of like how they the the existence of the the original letters maybe we could like fudge it a little and say that instead of the letters being at the franklin institute in the film it was like a temporary display of the actual new england current papers that people had saved and then it can be all legit which like why don't they do that i think that would be a cool temporary display i think that would have been i mean it would be cool now but i think especially around the time that interest for the movies and interest about the silence do good letters were coming out i don't know if it was just hard to coordinate because you have to get like official permissions for all of that stuff to be transported and kept safe and whatnot but i think it would have been pretty cool to have a temporary exhibit at the franklin institute of the new england current issues that contained these letters so cue Aubrey and Emily scouring eBay and the bowels of the internet for copies of the New England Current starting now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, guys. That's what we have for you That as our deep dive of the Silence Do Good Letters as seen in National Treasure. We hope you enjoyed this little historical lesson and that you learned something, or maybe even you can pick a favorite letter from the 14 that Benjamin Franklin wrote as Mrs. Silence Duguid. And hey, you should let us know which letter is your favorite on our social media. Em, you wanna give them one more reminder of where they can find us? You can, can, can find, 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 find us. I can't with you. Uh, on twitter and instagram at nt hunt podcast you can also find us for your listening ears on itunes spotify we even got you hipsters covered over there on soundcloud go ahead like subscribe rate review comment do whatever you can let us know that you're here let us know that you're listening let us know that you too care about national treasure to the extent that we do or even if it's not quite to the same extent that you care (laughs) Wow. That was, uh, that was convincing. If I, if I do say so myself and Hey, y'all, we hope you come back in two weeks time for our next episode. It's going to be really enjoyable. If you liked our Ben Gates character analysis a couple weeks ago, because we're continuing our season three character analysis series with our in-depth assessment of the character, Abigail Chase. I'm sure this is going to be really entertaining because of all of Emily's thoughts and opinions on the patriarchy and how this character is portrayed, but also how we kind of see ourselves in her a little bit. So Mm -hmm. it should be a really good time. So don't forget to come back for that. And until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily.
And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.